Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. One of my hopes when we started Back from the Abyss four years ago was that the process of sharing stories through this medium would be inherently meaningful for the storyteller, that somehow Back from the Abyss could be an antidote for shame, a way for people to own their darkness and not have it own them. Today's guest really is, I think, a shining example of storytelling as therapy. Stephanie wrote to me in the spring of last year when we had already finished recording season three. Then she reached out to me again this fall, saying that she had a story that she both wanted and needed to tell. And after witnessing and recording her story, I think I now understand on a whole different level why she needed to speak out publicly. 30 years ago, a 10-year-old boy was found stabbed to death in a park. The same park where 18-year-old Stephanie and three young men were seen riding bikes the night before. Stephanie and the others were repeatedly questioned. They became the prime suspects. Yet they, nor anyone, was ever charged for the murder, and it remains unsolved to this day. This is the story how one event can alter the course of your life how so many possibilities for the future can disappear overnight. This is the story of how after years of unhelpful psychotherapy and medications, Stephanie was finally able to uncover what lay beneath with the help of an unusually perceptive therapist, as well as ketamine and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So I registered for my first semester of college. And I met my boyfriend, and we went to the police station. We had gone on a bike ride the day before, and there was a murder in the park that night. And um, apparently, they thought that we were involved, and we did it. We were covering it up or something, or we knew something. They, it's, it is like it is in the movies. They separate you from whoever you went in with and ask a ton of questions and... It's hard to recall too many of the details that day. I know that I had um, a lot of debates about which specific areas in the park I was that day or which 7-Eleven or things like that. Do you remember, did it feel scary or ominous at the time, like you were facing something terrible, or was it just, okay, I'm just coming in to interview because they want to talk to me, but this is nothing I, I need to get too worried about? I thought I was helping. I thought, like, they just don't, and then, I know what happened, like, I know that we didn't do it, and so I just thought I would go help. I didn't, it was before the time that you really understand how, what talking to the police really is like. I, I thought, well, we would just help them, and that way they don't waste their time looking for the wrong people. And then how did that start to evolve and unravel as, as you realized that you weren't just going to be some sort of uh, informant or helpful citizen, but actually you were going to be the the target of the investigation. I think your brain never really accepts what's going on um, in something like that. I think that I thought we'd go down, have one conversation, it would be done. There was more conversations. An attorney came out of the woodworks for me. And once you get an attorney, they start telling you don't tell anybody anything ever. They, uh, you just think every day you think it's over and then they search a house and then you're testifying in front of the grand jury and then you're subpoenaed for something else. And as much as you're trying to be cooperative and you're trying to help when 
you don't actually have the information that they want. I don't know who who killed that kid. I don't know. I didn't commit that crime. And to have to have that asked every single time over and over by the police and by the press, and you just think it's not going to happen. You think, thought it was going to be one conversation with the police, and it would be nothing. And then we'll do the grand jury and then it'll be nothing. And then we'll do like, and then you keep thinking it'll go away and it keeps getting brought up in the press. And even after it keeps getting brought up in the press, there's whack jobs on the internet that mm-hmm. want to tell you things that they think you should do. And, and when it, did it start to feel real? Like that it was growing from you being someone they wanted to question to uh, being a person of interest to you realizing like, this is super serious. Like you are one of their lead suspects for murder. I don't know if it ever felt real, to be honest. I don't know. Um, you stop feeling. You really have to stop feeling because you can't. And then you're angry. You're upset. And it's it's terrifying that this mass injustice has happened and nobody's actually seeking the truth. It's seems so surreal. And even when I tell the story today, it seems so surreal. And I'm met with such disbelief. It's... It... I don't think it ever felt real. I don't think there was a moment that I thought, oh no, this is really happening. Don't think there was one. When that happens and you're that age and you're getting the message from the things that are supposed to protect you and the people that are supposed to protect you that you're not worth protecting and that it was so easy for those individuals involved in that investigation in the press to throw my life away as if it just didn't matter i think this this poor kid that died deserves justice and they they matter and they never got that either and to treat certain people and if uh, Somebody must know. And if, if they know, and then they help someone cover it up, they gave me this huge message that I don't matter. And I carried that message that I don't matter into every relationship I've ever had. And when it comes down to having a deep emotional conversation and you say to the person, you don't care about me, and really believe it, um, and just project that, and, and to go there, to go that. I got such a strong message at such an early age that it didn't matter and my life didn't matter and I didn't matter. And what was the reaction of your family and friends, the people who loved you and knew you, you know, as you were being um, increasingly investigated and possibly going to be charged for murder? Not well. It's back in the day when people just trusted the media. They read the papers and, and listened to the newscast um, and listened to the police, believe them. There were a lot of people that didn't know what to do. They kind of just vanished. And family, like there's always that protectiveness of parents, but I think they could never really understand. I don't think dad ever understood that the, maybe the cops weren't being honest and that that whole paradigm of they're the good guys and everything they say is right never, never, he just couldn't get past that. Mm-hmm. And with mom... Mom said she was supportive. She always said she was supportive, but she was like 
kind of harsh and um, kind of, I don't think she, I don't think she knew what to do either. What would you do? You know, I was a good kid living in the suburbs, minding my own business. What would you do? Because I, I have to give him some slack for that. But right, your daughter's about to go off to college, and a whoop, she's riding her bike by a park where a child was killed, and now she's a suspect. Did the investigation come to any conclusion? Did they say you are no longer a suspect, or we are going to kind of quote unquote let you go from our you know, beam of suspicion, and you can go on and go on with your life and become who you're going to be no um you never get uh we're sorry from the police <laughs> it's still not solved so there's still no justice um we're we're math we're several years out 30 years out decades out however you want to put that no one was ever charged no one was ever mm-hmm. charged So do you just then go to college and move into your dorm and go to classes and just pretend like you're a high school, you're a college freshman who maybe had a awful summer experience that day. you don't that yeah. you don't want to talk about? How did that unfold? I did start school, even though I had problems that normal college kids didn't have, like the police waiting for me by my car at late at night on campus, even though I'd had an attorney who would answer any questions or have me answer any questions whenever they wanted to. You get used to not trusting anybody and not believing anybody. You also also tend to question who you are as a person because mm-hmm. this thing happens. And I didn't like relate to it or really understand it, but you have to still go on and live your life with this thing swirling around you. So yeah, I tried to act like it wasn't happening. I tried to... You didn't tell anyone. I didn't didn't need to. Mm -hmm. There was enough in the press that either you knew or you didn't. Mm -hmm. How do you think that changed you as a person? You know, that the 18-year-old with hope and plans to go to college and build your life and then accused of murder, still under a cloud of suspicion and now you're in college, and I'm imagining some core things about you might have changed. Very much so. It shakes your belief in the goodness of other people. It shakes your belief in the, your trust in the system. It shakes um, your belief in everything that like, you think that you know. Because it's so, it's so big, you don't think it can happen. And I think that at the time, you're also this, like the possibilities of your life are supposed to be unfolding and you're supposed to be finding your path and find out who you are. And I didn't get to do that. I didn't get to find out who I was. I didn't, I just didn't get to, that wasn't available to me at the time. I just needed to survive it and never talk about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, could you make friends? I'm just imagining you on college campus and knowing, as you said, that people either know or they don't. They've either read about you, like, oh, this is, this is that person we read about, or they don't. I'm, I'm guessing to try to connect with people and be, be vulnerable and form new relationships would be nearly impossible. 
It was. I did, now that you mention it, there was, I had a really significant friend through most of my adult life that I met in college. But I don't, a lot of times that's the, that's where people get their friends. That's where people get their, like their foundation of the adults they choose to spend their life with. And I didn't have any new ones. So often when people go through something so devastating like this, you know, losing their kind of hope and trust in the system and in people and that things are going to work out, you know, they can kind of go spiraling into depression or spiraling into numbness and kind of a just sort of a blocked state. I'm wondering, what did it look like for you in the years after that? I mean, were you, looking back, do you think you or clinically depressed and or do you think you were in more of a kind of numbed out trauma state or what, what did that look like? I think I spent a lot of years being very numb. Um, just completely not in touch with the feelings, having to keep it together every day, never being able to like being watched so closely and never being able to express emotions or do normal things, talk about it with anybody. And I hid from it for years, and I didn't talk about it at all, ever. I did end up with depression, but that didn't happen until later. I think looking back in the times, I had times that I had experienced depression, at times more intense than others. Um, But I think for so long, those feelings were just buried so deep, and I wasn't in touch with them at all. We had spoken a little bit before recording about kind of your treatment journey and the fact that in all those years you you did see some therapists and you tried to get some help and um, say a little bit more about that path. What was helpful, what wasn't, you know, what you think looking back in, in your journey to try to find some healing. Yeah, I did see a number of therapists. Uh, and like, I look back to my earlier days in my twenties and I think I was more in touch with that. This was a thing that happened and, but I never really found a therapist that felt like it was something worth talking about. Uh, it probably is more significant, uh, when I was an adult and just started getting significant depression and anxiety and I, did end up going to see a therapist. We did talk about it because this was a very public thing and it's something that you could could find and could search. And so there was a lot of stress and anxiety anytime I needed a new job or needed to do something professionally. And I remember talking with that specific therapist about it in that context, in the context of employment and getting the well, you know, I Googled you, there's not much kind of attitude Mm -hmm. and not really wanting to talk about the trauma behind it or the feelings. Being fair, therapists are not mind readers 
And if you tell the story with no emotion, like you're reading the news or the dictionary maybe or something, if you tell the story with no emotion, some therapists don't have that ability to pick up on the fact that there there might be something there that maybe should be talked about. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that theme in a few other episodes where and you know, I've I've also admitted that I think I've missed trauma and dissociation and numbing for so many years that you know, when we're asking people as therapists about their trauma history, if they tell us about seemingly traumatic incidents with calm and kind of dispassionate emotions, it's easy to think, Oh, healed. You know, and I'm wondering, right, you are going to see therapists and trying to get some help and presumably they're asking about trauma history and if you talked about this in in a very calm, measured, sort of disconnected way, they could easily think, oh, this is not an issue. We, we don't need to uh, consider this in terms of your current suffering. I never owned it. You know, like, in, again, in their defense, I never owned it. I, like, and I've had this when it comes crashing into my life. I've had to explain to people, I'm like, I don't, I don't mark anniversaries. I don't, I don't, like, follow this necessarily cold case story. I, I don't. And I literally went into my current therapist's office and I'm like, oh, these things happen in life. And then, but here's this one thing that we don't need to talk about. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I so often think, you know, it's it's the things when we're going to therapy, either going or leaving, going to be, okay, we definitely don't need to talk about this or leaving therapy. I'm really glad we didn't talk about that. Like, that's exactly what needed to happen. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that you just, um, I, I wouldn't relate to it. I wouldn't own it. And even in the therapeutic process, being encouraged to own it, own part of the story. Yeah. What do you it. mean own it? I think I know what you're talking about, but I, think, I do think that's an important point. What were you not owning that you needed to own? I would say this happened around me, not to me. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of trauma in the story. There's a lot of tragedy for other people that I, don't, I can't take away any of their pain or their mis- injustice or anything like that. It just felt like there was this thing that it just kind of happened around feeling like collateral damage. Hmm. Yeah. Almost like a bomb went off around you, but not to you. Yeah. But really a bomb blew up, blew you up. Yeah. And yeah. it was such a strange thing because I, it's really hard to relate and own trauma of something that you didn't do and that you just had to deal with the fallout of what happens to people that didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Or even I could imagine you telling the story at a therapist's office and saying, and well, and then I wasn't charged and nobody ever was charged. And it was a long time ago. And, and the therapist thinking, okay, well, let's move on. So glad nothing happened. Yeah. So glad nothing. Right. So glad you didn't go to prison unfairly or yeah. Or the cops didn't torture you or, you know, starve you to make you give a confession or something. No, they just questioned you a number of times. How hard could that be? When did that start to 
shift. Because again, there was a long treatment journey, seeing people, trying to figure out, you know, your worsening depression and and kind of numbness, and again, often telling the story, but not owning it, not feeling it, not either cognitively or in your heart, you know, believing or knowing that this was core to your suffering. How, how did that shift? That shifted through ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. That's what it took. And I even recall going into those few sessions and, you know, I had to learn. I had to learn about it. And um, the therapist that I use uses a somatic processing method. I had to learn. And, like, sometimes these things are stored in your body. or um, And, you know, we had conversations. It's like things happen uh, before they learn to speak so they don't have memories. Or maybe there is. And I remember being so disingenuous with myself that I went into those first few sessions going, man. Something there. I wonder what that could be. Hmm. Seems so silly now. I had been trying um, to get relief from depression with psychiatric meds. It wasn't going well. And so I had learned a little bit about these therapies, and I thought I'd give it a try. And like I said, I go in, sit on the couch, and this is what's going on. These are the things I want to talk about. But there's this thing that we don't need to talk about. And... He being a, um, a, a kind and uh, very resourceful therapist himself and empathetic, said, okay, that's fine. And then we started the work and we did some sessions. And that's what's kind of magical about these therapies is even if you don't know what you're healing or how you're healing it or how it's working, you, you do feel better. I found relief. And so after a few sessions, I was feeling better in general. I was feeling more resilient. I was feeling stronger. The depression was lifting. And I went in for an appointment one day and he said, well, there's this other thing I'd like to explore someday when you're feeling up to it. And I'm like, well, I'm feeling pretty resilient today. Let's give it a try. Mm. I'm wondering if with the ketamine, if you experience this phenomenon, because we'll often see the people with depression and trauma or depression and numbing will get great relief from ketamine, but then they also will start to feel a different kind of pain is that they'll start to feel, you know, so a lot of people can come in and say, wow, I'm better. It's almost like, um, it's like they found the windshield wipers for their car after all these years. And it's so great to be able to see out the window, but then you're looking out at the wreckage and you're thinking, oh no. Or, you know, in the case of so many patients, it's that starting to just feel the good feelings, the bad feelings, the, just all that numbing, you know, pushed away that, that dissociative freeze, kind of broken by ketamine. And then, but now you got to start dealing with all of the feeling. Yes. And that's really hard particularly when your trauma was decades ago, because you can't talk to anybody in your life. And they're like, why are you bothered by this thing now? And you've also go through, like I've, I've observed myself relating to this differently, starting from something that wasn't a thing, maybe it's a thing, to how I've related to it differently in different stages of this healing process. There's been grief. There's been a lot of grief for um, other options, things that I never got to find out as a youth. 
um, things that were decided for me. There was lately a lot of anger has been showing up. Mm-hmm. Just how I've related to it has changed a lot through the process, and it's different. Yeah, all the time. It's like realize, as I said, kind of going back to that metaphor, the windshield wipers. It's almost like if you're thinking. Also, like your rear wipers started working and you could look out the back of your car and realize all the things that never happened, like the roads you didn't go down, the paths not taken, that you just weren't even aware of because you were just sort of doing your life and just trying to keep going forward. But yeah, you break out of that kind of trauma numbing and you realize that there's so much that didn't happen that could have happened. And I think being so disassociated for so long and not being able to acknowledge those feelings and then suddenly having to feel it kind of all at once. Your analogy is very spot on to, to look in that rearview mirror and that, weir- that window and all those things that could have happened that just never get to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and to feel all of it. Yeah. Granted, it's in a safer place. You're with a supportive therapist. Ketamine helps with that, too. And then, you know, our brains are great places to protect us from these feelings and get us through these times. Mm-hmm. Because, it, you know, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be able to. I would not have fared well if I had expressed anger or any types of emotion or instability or anything mm-hmm. in, in the years following that. Yeah. Tell me about your decision then after doing a number of courses of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. You you then transitioned to do some underground MDMA work. Tell me about how that happened. Well, there's a lot of me that, first of all, never really expects any of this to work and didn't think, thought of, well, maybe it would be interesting or curious to try to see what would happen. Um, And same with the ketamine. When it was starting to work, I was kind of surprised. Didn't really expect it to work. And um, it's kind of the anti-placebo effect. Yeah. <laughs> You're not even hopeful. Hopeful expectation. You're like, nah, it's not going to work. Yeah. And I think that because in therapy, that my therapist helped me understand that this pulled into a lot of deeper emotions. Already went into it. You know, young adult. What young adult doesn't have self-esteem issues or questions or whatever? Moving on to the next stage of life. And because going through this so early on and losing faith that people are good and the world is a good place and seeing how that affected, like, just that complete detachment, the MDMA seemed like a good idea to maybe try to break through and get into some of those feeling places again and try to get past some of those feelings that I don't matter. The world doesn't matter. There's no justice. There's uh, people are terrible trying to get past some of those feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think of, you know, ketamine as being such a powerful tool for uh, 
depression, of course, and also breaking through dissociation. But maybe not necessarily doing the deeper work of shame. Not that you can't get there with ketamine, but um, I think so much of trauma is so bound up in shame and self-blame and self-loathing and you know, just utter lack of compassion for oneself. Tell me how that unfolded. Was there integration work? You know, how many sessions? What did the, the after integration look like? I only did one session. I did most of the after work with my therapist, my regular therapist. It did enough, you know, beforehand and, and immediately after to uh, feel supported through that process. But again, in most of these, the magic doesn't necessarily happen that day when you take that medicine that day and most of it unfolds after. Mm -hmm. How did you know, again, because trust is so core for you and feeling like you can't at the core really not know that you can, that people are going to be there for you and things are going to be okay. So how, how did you go about finding someone to do underground work with and, and trust, you know, deciding you're going to trust them and that they're going to give you the substance. And I mean, it sounds like a whole different level of um, challenge for you versus like going to do ketamine assisted psychotherapy, which is legal and, you know, people are licensed and you can look it up on the internet. I even look back, it seems very out of character. And for some reason, I decided in that moment to trust. And there also gets to be a point where you know how bad it can be. You've been through really, really bad stuff and you know how bad it can be. And you just think that I can't get much worse. You know, I know that's not a great attitude, but I think in that moment I trusted and I was ready and prepared enough through the really supportive sessions that I had going into it. Mm -hmm. Did you go into that one MDMA session with any particular intentions or work you wanted to do? Or conversely, was it just and, you know, wanting or willing to be open to what unfolded? I wanted to work on this specific, these feelings attached to this specific event. Mm -hmm. Shame feelings. Didn't know it going into mm. it. That was actually one of those things. It was that just feelings, came like out bad of feelings, yeah. but not, right. I didn't know that I had shame until after that session. Mm. That actually came up for me. That's one of the memories that I have during that session, just... With psychedelics, there's a lot of these things that happen that don't really make much sense. It's pretty mysterious. It did feel like, you know, there was a huge crack and it felt like there were these like other beings, other me's, other things outside of me, you know, that all suddenly show up in real form in the room that day, just kind of all mysterious like that. But again, I did not have... You know, I'd read the data. I didn't have this huge expectation of what was going to happen. So you weren't thinking you were going to walk out of there after one MDMA session with this big cure? I'm healed. Completely <laughs> healed. <laughs> that would be cool.
what I wasn't prepared for was um, the what happened after. And in those first couple days after, just being so emotionally raw, so, so brutal, waking up that day, each day for at least a good couple consecutive days in a different place with it, grieving the lives that I didn't get to have, grieving the choices that I didn't get to make, questioning everything. In a way that you had not been able to grieve before. Never. Hmm. And uh, one of the people I was with that day, I married, it's my husband, woke up one day questioning, like, would we have even picked each other? Had that not happened, we didn't. We don't get to know. We don't get to know. I mean, he's my rock. He's he's been. A, it's been great that we've been married, but I don't get to know. And, and and that was frustrating me and pissing me off. I didn't get to even know that I chose the person I married through how people usually choose these things. I didn't get that opportunity. I didn't get to do all these other college experiences that people typically have in college. I mourned the lifetimes that I'll never have. Then I was angry (laughs) and we were still pandemic time working from home. And it's pretty easy to keep it together for an hour long zoom meeting. But then my poor husband is like, you're crying about what today? (laughs) You know, just the aftermath was really, really. What what a powerful example of, why therapy after, say, an MDMA session, integration after, is so important. Because all the stuff just gets pulled up and um, and just pouring out. And if you don't know what to do with it, you could easily imagine, like if you had just done that session and then been alone with it, you could have thought, wow, I did that MDMA thing and it actually made me worse. It made me more sad, more grieving, more angry, more resentful, more confused versus if you have a place where you can explore that and work with it and realize that no, this is actually a gift this is you know this is a the churning you know suppressed repressed feelings that have been down there for so long that are now coming up like this gift from the sea to work with if if you can only figure out how to do that and i think that's how i felt after you've like the medicines in these treatments they they give you the things that you need and then it like you don't process it immediately. Then you have to take what you're given, go back to your regular life and then, and then deal with it. They give you the material that you can then work with later. Mm -hmm. You said prior to that MDMA session, even going into it, you didn't even fully recognize that shame was um, fundamental. I had no concept that shame was even a thing for me. And even one of the therapists in the sessions did say something like that, like this was public. You were publicly humiliated. And I remember never having connected with those words before that. Yeah. Publicly branded, potentially murder. Very public. And And that publicity never went away. Um, You never get free of that. And it, I never really dealt with the fact that it was so public. And then, and I think actually the publicity of it all made it even worse because then you can't feel any of it Mm -hmm. even more. 
what did it look like in those days and weeks after MDMA where, again, shame is kind of coming more front and center and you're doing work with that with your therapist? I mean, how did you, how did you work with that, come to understand that? How did that evolve? I think it was so profound even figuring it out. Again, in such a strong therapeutic relationship that I have, that you finally in your life feel like this person knows all of you, actually sees you as you are. Maybe you don't get to be seen necessarily as you are by others. And to be able to deal with something like that in a, you know, again, in a supported, protective place through therapy. And again, it, it took a while. And it, it um, again, when something like this happens to you, it's not something you can say often, talk to. Like, and people have things they connect with others about through shared experience and through finding common grounds. And this is not one of those things. Mm-hmm. And I did realize there was a shift from this thing that I never talked about to actually being able to talk about it and share it with peers and people in my life now. And that was healing too, in the sense that they're, I don't quite get it. And they're only hearing what you're telling them now. But the fact that they're, I was met with empathy and concern versus suspicion and worry, or I don't even know what else was it before. Mm -hmm. My sense has been that you know, the not only one of the antidotes for shame, but a marker that shame is diminishing and disappearing is when we can speak openly about something. I'm, I'm thinking of like, even in 12-step groups, you know, there's so much shame with addiction. And how do 12-step groups start? You know, hi, I'm Craig, I'm a drug addict, that kind of thing. You just put it out there. Uh, and, and I've talked to other people healing their trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and their stories will be like, well, this thing happened to me, and I was ashamed of it, but I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask for it. I didn't want it, you know, and it just happened and, and dealing with that. So I understand that in hearing how other people deal with their trauma. Never occurred to me that's that was some of the reasons why behind not talking about it. Have you been more able to speak to friends and family about what happened since since you've done this work? I've been e- it's been easier. I'm really trying to find a balance of what I relate to. I feel like my entire life needs a trigger warning, <laughs> needs a content warning. <laughs> um, there, no part of the story is not dark, and it's it's really hard to lay it on anyone and lay it on anyone without kind of testing those boundaries to see where they are in any given moment yeah well today we're laying it on a few thousand people (laughs) (laughs) i've been really impressed since you first reached out to me how much you wanted to tell the story Uh, because we first spoke a number of months ago um and i thought wow she really 
needs and wants to tell this story. And then I think, again, even as I sit here and listen to you today, I think, yeah, this is part of the process. This is part of what you didn't do for so long. You had to keep it quiet and just try to pretend it wasn't a thing and just hope it wasn't going to come back and bite you or creep up or someone confront you about it. But here you are, you drove up the snowy roads to come and record this, which is super impressive and hopeful. I did really want to tell it. Part of that, there's an ownership factor there and and never having been able to do it and never not been able to talk in the moment and then not talking, just choosing or burying for years. I really did want to tell it. Mm-hmm. I thank you for that. Yeah. Where would you say you are now? You've done a ton of work on this, you know, in, in your healing path. Um, and you know, even before we started recording, you and I were sort of joking about it's back from the abyss thing that, you know, sometimes you never really get out of the abyss, <laughs> at least you're only partially out. But where are you in terms of moving out of the darkness? Because it's clear that you've come a long ways, but what still haunts you or what do you feel like you still need to come to some sort of terms with for you to move forward in the way you want to? I feel like I'm circling the abyss <laughs> in a given day and it changes and I don't know if I can ever truly feel healed. I I wish there would be a resolution. I wish somebody would, somebody knows something and I wish somebody would confess or somebody would, I wish there would be a conviction. I don't know if there ever will. I don't know if this kid will ever get justice. But I wonder how much that would really fix know. things. Like I'm imagining tomorrow the person confesses. Let's say he's already locked up somewhere and he confesses. I'm imagining there to some, there'd be some degree of peace there, resolution. But, all this other stuff, as we said, looking out the rear view mirror or the rear window of your life, none of that changed. It wouldn't change whether they get a confession or figure it out, you know, with some DNA tomorrow or next year. Like that, that's all that's done. It wouldn't change anything. You're right. Like I feel like there would be some sort of resolution and some sort of closure, but it doesn't change all those paths that I didn't get to take. It doesn't change any of those lives I could have lived. And it's, like, I can only hope for peace for the others. Like, that, this was a huge tragic event. I can only hope for that. I, I think I'm out. I'm, I'm living mostly, I'm living mostly healed. Like, I'm not taking any psychiatric medications. I'm, um, you know, living an authentic, productive life thing. It's a learning process. I've been learning a lot. I see Stephanie's treatment journey unfolding in three steps. Ketamine-assisted therapy to alleviate her depression and crack open her dissociative protective shell. MDMA-assisted therapy to reveal her core shame wound. And then this, the process of putting together her story of owning what happened to her and sharing with all of you a story that she can now hold both in her head and in her heart. Thank you.